If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here, Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. And there's lots to talk about coming up a little later on today. Uh, it's sort of an economic d- update. And the whole idea behind these things are the budget was given out uh, or came out a while ago. This is halfway through it. And, you know, you're supposed to update and, and where you are and your goals and projections and such. But it appears that there's going to be a lot of uh, policy announced in and around housing. Uh, which again was something this government has talked about since 2015. So we will get you all the latest, uh, on that when it, uh, comes about at, uh, four o'clock. But, uh, it, it looks like there's some sort of thing in there for housing. I'm not sure what more else they can do. Uh, what needed to be done was, you know, building houses, uh, five, 10, 15, 20 years ago in Ontario and, you know, across the country. Uh, when, you know, at a time when if you built anything, you were leaving too big a footprint and, uh, nothing got done. So, uh, we live in a world of extremes and now we have a low supply and a high demand and we are where we are. It's going to be interesting to see, uh, how Christia Freeland, uh, presents this coming up a little later on straddling again in a lot of situations, uh, dividing and then straddling the fence between the two, whether it's on politics, uh, world politics, whether it's on finance, whether it's on energy, climate change, what have you. So fascinating to see that. Here's some good news. Ontario elementary school teachers have reached a deal. What is going on? Do we again have the most center uh, Ontario government than we've had, a centrist Ontario government than we've had since the days of Bill Davis, certainly from a conservative standpoint. And bing, bang, boom, uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, of commotion. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of, of saber rattling in the media at times. But again, these are getting done at record pace. Uh, which is phenomenal and understand, uh, still one board left out and it'll be interesting to see how, uh, that all, uh, comes around. Also, inflation is down from 3.5%, or sorry, 3.8% to 3.1%, which is good news. Uh, the un- unfortunate thing is groceries still, although stabilizing a bit, still, you know, 5.4%, uh, above that 3.8 and rent, uh, increasing from 7.9% to 8.2%. Uh, That's rent inflation. So it really does seem how you break it down and then, you know, combined all of it together. But groceries and housing still a, a major situation. And again, we'll see how that's all reflected uh, in the budget that's coming up, uh, or not budget, uh, the update on the budget coming up a little later on. And again, we will, uh, we will have all of that for you as it becomes available. Also, just a brutal story um, from uh, WestJet where uh, this passenger who uh, had mobility issues literally had to pull herself up a ladder uh, when apparently there was some sort of uh, elevator device there. 
that they could have used. However, whether the crew was there or not is is a different story. They offered the chance. She was offered the chance for her to for them to uh, pick her up and move her onto the plane with with two uh, aides helping her do that. And she turned that down, saying it was unsafe. Although the airline saying this is something that they do uh, all the time and they're they're trained for it. So uh, just a terrible situation and. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this moving forward. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, the Greg, uh, the Grey Cup game in the Hammer Man. Like you know, I mean, c- could you get a, a better publicity for number one, a phenomenal game, a great, uh, a great halftime show, and then a nail biter right to the very end, which is why we love the CFL, which is why we love uh, the Grey Cup. And Hamill did an incredible job of uh, showing itself to the rest of the country. The manager of tourism and events for the city. Hamilton going to talk about exactly what we get when we host uh, such a event and it turns out to be a uh, double thumbs up and the world is watching also uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, fall economic update as that comes closer but again not much we can talk about uh, until uh, it actually comes out so this was bizarre the two Michaels Michael Spaver seeking a multi-million dollar uh, settlement from Ottawa alleging that he was detained for three years because he unwittingly providing intelligence on North Korea to Canada Canada and allied space uh, spy services and said that uh, the deception was conducted by fellow Canadian principal uh, prisoner Michael Kovrig. So a bizarre twist to that story, which we've all been waiting for uh, since they've been released. So we'll talk about that a little later on as well. Some, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to travel to Europe a few weeks ago and, y- you know, it's just night and day the way, the way uh, other airports, international airports, what have you, uh, treat their passengers compared to what we are are uh, grace with here in Canada sometimes, and we certainly know the situation over uh, the pandemic and what have you, um, but we, you know, there's a couple of stories here that are uh, pretty shocking. One is uh, uh, the story of a, uh, a former Paralympian who was trying to, uh, coming back and landing in Kelowna and, and or, or in Kelowna and was trying to get up the side of the staircase of an airplane. There was no lift there that normally that would be done for. Um, and I believe request, uh, requested one. One was, was there, but it was unable to be used for some reason. Uh, and I guess the procedure after that was to put the person in a chair and literally have two people carry them up. Uh, she didn't opt for that. And instead, uh, there's just, you know, a terrible image of her pulling herself up the stairs while passengers, you know, kind of watched in horror. The other one is, is that in the North American airlines, the two Canadian airlines are at the bottom of the ranking of getting you to your destination on time. Let's begin uh, Gabor Lukacs, President Air Passenger Rights and Advocacy Group, and here now. Gabor, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. It's uh, great to be with you again. So, Gabor, what are your thoughts on this story about uh, this poor person trying to get up the stairs of an airliner? What's your take? It is absolutely appalling. It, it, it you know, it, what uh, what the, there's some level of lack of understanding by airlines uh, at the corporate level and the level of the training that when we are dealing with persons with disabilities, their mobility aids are an extension of their person, and that. We are not just dealing with a technical issue. It's not just a piece of the baggage, but we are also talking here about dignity and and the life of a person. I, I don't think anybody should be treated ever this way. 
And, uh, and what is concerning is not simply that one case happens, but rather that it is not the last one, I'm sure. It has ha been happening for mm -hmm. years, and uh, I fear that it is going to happen, continue to happen, unless the government is willing to genuinely crack down on it, which I've not seen any willingness by the government, not on this issue of disabilities and not on any other passenger rights issues. It would be very simple to crack down on such issues by creating a, a regime of uh, much uh, bigger fines and actually applying those fines consistently and, and uh, in a quite uh, unforgiving manner. If so we, uh, this sorry, type of ahead. incidents cause the airlines bottom line, they're going to change their behavior. So we understand or from what the, the, the woman was saying is that there was a piece of equipment there that was totally capable of doing that. Do we know what happened? Like why that wasn't used? Was there a crew available to operate it, um, qualified? Do we know? I'm not privy to the details, so I'm not comfortable commenting on that. Um, but what I can tell you is that this type of assistance must be provided. It is, it is a matter of uh, compassion, of common decency, and also a matter of the law. And I'll play devil's advocate here, Gabor. Some would say, well, there was, you know, two qualified people who were trained in this, so says the airlines, to uh, physically help the person up. Uh, you know, as I'm sitting there, uh, as I'm looking at this image, I'm thinking if I was a passenger waiting to get on the plane, I'd be going, come on, everybody, let's go. Yeah, like somebody grab a, you know, help her out. We got to help her out. And, you know, um, what about the offer of the, the, uh, the, the lift up manually? Well, um, lifting up manually can be used in emergency, but it, there is a question of the passenger's dignity in such situations. Right. And, right. Uh, and normally, if you do have the devices, that the, the, the mechanical electronic devices to do the lifting in a dignified mm -hmm. manner, then the airline has to have their adequate crew members, adequate staffing to ensure that they are able to live up to their obligations to passengers with disabilities. It's, and it, is staffing still an issue, Gabor? Like, it just seems that we're still lacking here. I mean, you know, the, the other news story, obviously, about how uh, the two Canadian airlines, WestJet and Air Canada, are at the bottom of the rankings for North American Airlines when it comes to getting you there on time. Are we, why, were, why are we not holding, why are we not like the rest of the world in this stuff? Um, uh, is it a staffing issue? I believe the airlines are trying to cut corners wherever they can. You, you cannot cut corners with fuel, so yeah. cutting corners with staffing remains perhaps an issue to some degree. It is also a question of priorities, that uh, because the treatment of passengers with disabilities has been accepted in, in what we see for mm. such a long time, it is uh, airlines don't understand that this is actually a priority. They actually do have to to uh, deal with these issues, and they have to divert resources to dealing with these issues because what they're doing currently is simply unacceptable. Gabor Lukacs with us, President, Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, on a couple of stories that are coming out in regard to a uh, a, a former Paralympian uh, who was you know trying to get up a WestJet. Uh, staircase by herself without the aid of equipment and the rankings of those two airlines being at the bottom of the heap when it comes to online or sorry, uh, on time arrivals uh, with North American Airlines. Gabor, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much for having me.
uh, of course, Green Day uh, blew, uh, blew the roof right off the dump. That See, there's nothing there uh, with a halftime show. And, I mean, is anybody uh, talking uh, that there was a bad part of this? Uh, unless maybe you became uh, out on the losing stick in some way, but an incredible game right down to the last dying seconds of the game, an incredible halftime show, and obviously an incredible Grey Cup Festival week, which included uh, some amazing shows and in, in, in parties along James Street North and, and the Armory and all of that stuff. I mean, it was, and then weaving in the Santa Claus Parade and anything else that's going on uh, in the Hammer as, uh, as part of it. So, fabulous to see that uh, it, it turned out so well and that there were so many there, there were so many uh, different things going on over and above the game itself and the music uh, a big part of this uh, Steve Milton in the spectator uh, wrote this week or the week that will change uh, it was the week that will change the Grey Cups future uh, in part because of how the festivities and such uh, took place now obviously uh, it's pretty safe to say that there's lots of in, uh, economic impact not only to the city of Hamilton but people are everywhere around the uh, the city and such and, and the in the region uh but uh obviously uh, a couple of days out or a day out it's uh it's interesting to see uh what the uh what the uh, the talk is about before the actual figures and raw data but let's bring in ryan McHugh, manager of tourism and events city of hamilton uh obviously talked a few times uh before the big parte and now it's after how are you feeling ryan what are your thoughts uh, still haven't come down from the high was that that was that weekend. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, what an incredible Great Cup festival for Hamilton, and um, I think it's safe to say, as the commissioner did, we've set a new bar, uh, just a classic, uh, one of the best Great Cup festivals on record. Talk about that new bar. What do you mean? What? What was different? Yeah, in addition to all of the traditional CFL events such as Great Cup um, team parties and. Uh, commissioner's breakfast awards, um, the music activations beyond that. You have a, a first Ontario center packed for the Carrie Underwood concert down the road. You had uh, the Shaggy concert in Niagara Falls um, at, at the super crawl festival, 40 different performances, the Santa Claus parade. Um, just, you know, this is, these are things that whether you're a football fan or not, uh, you know, you could have interest in. So it just opened up the festival to, to everybody. And, you know, whether you are a football fan or not, whether you can afford the, you know, couple hundred dollar ticket to get into the game, you could feel like you were a part of that festival and participate, which was just an incredible thing. And, uh, you know, created, created a legacy, I would say. And we talked about this, Ryan, before uh, all of this happened, that, you know, rather than, okay, the Grey Cup Festival is coming to town, so we can't do anything else. we got to, you know, give that priority and whatever. It's like everything continued on. The Santa Claus Parade you mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, I can, you know, it's you bring all of this together as one big festival, and it was great that Hamilton proved it can, it can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. What are your thoughts as you look back at that, uh, things you'd redo differently? or or you know issues that arose because many thought you couldn't do all of this at once yeah it's uh you know in terms of you know what uh what we wouldn't have done uh you know i, I don't think there's much it's uh you know a lot was done right and that's hats off to the cfl and the tie cats and all of my colleagues throughout the city that helped with everything from road, road closures to policing uh but you know what what worked <laughs> um you know santa claus parade was bigger and better uh the yeah. super crawl festival looked amazing um, it, as you saw, the, the, there was a sellout at the uh, at Tim Hortons Field, which was a record crowd, over 28,000 
2000 more than the last Grey Cup. Um, just so many positive things. And, uh, you know, my uh, inbox, and I think it would be safe to say the inbox of uh, the Thai Cats as well, is full of, uh, you know, compliments, well done, and, and, you know, quite a few, when can we do it again? So talk a little bit about the spinoff, Ryan, because, you know, not everybody can get a hotel room in the Hammer. Now, it spreads out to the whole region, doesn't it? It does. And we, uh, our hotels, and we're getting about a new hotel or two a year being built, but traditionally Hamilton doesn't have the capacity of a Niagara Falls or a Toronto, but we're growing because of the successes we've had. So you've seen a lot of people uh, in Airbnbs, um, Niagara Falls had quite a bit of uptake because they had the CFL awards, but traditionally you would see uh, Burlington, Oakville, but because of all of the activities in Hamilton, uh, even if you stayed out of town, you are coming in town uh, multiple nights and not just for the game because we were, you know, the epicenter of all the festival activities. So, um, you know, in terms of, you know, economic impact, uh, numbers still being crunched, but uh, I was at the Grey Cup uh, last year in Regina and the CFL estimated about 68 million in economic impact across Canada, um, given all the incremental events, uh, whether that's Carrie Underwood, Shaggy, the festival. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would be shocked if we didn't surpass that figure and set a new record for economic impact for a Grey Cup festival. And of course, Ryan proved that we can do it. We can pull it off and, and, and do a great job of it. What does this do for promoting the city across the country? Because whenever you get a major event like this, you know, the, the networks and such, they make it the, you know, they find the sweetest spots. They make the cities look great and such. What yes. does this do for promoting the city across the country, especially because of the music uh, festivals and such? Yeah, it's, uh, it just really paints Hamilton in the positive light that, you know, Hamiltonians know it is, right? It's so much more than a couple smokestacks. It's music, it's culture, it's, you know, heritage, it's sport. Uh, and it's something where even, you know, not only the, you know, almost 30,000 which attended a game, that's 30,000 experiences. They're going to go home and tell everybody, people who visited um, the festival. But even this is nationally televised, you know, had over uh, 8 million viewers. Uh, across Canada, uh, many more around the world. I know even on uh, major, uh, you know, Monday Night Football, they're talking about the Great Cup here in Hamilton. So it really, uh, you know, puts us on a map. And um, those who, in a lot of people, and I was speaking with them, Scott, throughout the week, anytime I saw Winnipeg Jersey or Saskatchewan mm. Jersey, said, have you been here before? And often the answer was no. And I said, well, you know, next question, uh, how are you enjoying yourself? And they were just stunned, right? Just the beauty the, you know, how welcoming everybody was. Um, the weather wasn't so bad either, but uh, I yeah. can't say every November is going to look like that. But just a really, you know, great opportunity for all eyes on Hamilton, us to shine and just tell our story. And, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of people were listening. And I think whether it's, you know, coming uh, down the road to a Tide Cat game, a concert in Hamilton, or whatever the next big event is, people are going to take a long look at Hamilton. And here's, you know, you, you talked about this before and, and going to other Grey Cups prior to these two and and understanding what other cities were doing, what worked, what didn't work. You talked about being in Regina. Are you now getting the calls and saying, hey, that was pretty good. What do we do here? To, how can you help us out for the next one or two? Yeah, I would uh, suspect, uh, you know, BC's host committee would be uh, reaching out soon, uh, certainly to the to the Ticats there, because um, that's, that's a tough act to follow. And, uh, you know, not every community has, you know, the walkable downtown footprint with an arena, convention center, stadium not too far off. But, um, you know, whatever city 
does this moving forward, uh, you know, after Vancouver, you know, I think they'll really have to look and say, how do we supplement the festival beyond the, the 40 events, which are the typical festival and really put our unique uh, fingerprint on it, uh, you know, based on our strengths, whether that is, you know, arts, culture, music, um, because it's, it's changing and uh, you need more than just, just a big football game to get people to fly halfway across the country and spend a few days and quite a few dollars. What have you learned from this exercise? Last question, Ryan. What, uh, now that you're like, what, 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 what do you learn from something like this? Yeah, I learned, uh, well, one, I'll, I'll say two things. The first is, uh, you know, never underestimate the underdog because uh, mm-hmm. the Montreal Alouettes <laughs> pulled out a heck of an event. And, uh, you know, two, um, you know, Hamilton, we can, we can hold an event. And, uh, you know, I can say uh, we've had uh, a few other uh, organizations through, whether that's Hockey Canada, Curling Canada, um, you know, looking at the Great Cup festivities. And I can tell you they're very impressed with what they've seen. So I can tell you uh, more is coming. That's for sure. Hugh, congrat or sorry, Ryan, uh, congratulations. Uh, a, a tremendous effort, a tremendous success, and best of luck moving forward with all of this because, uh, yeah, it certainly uh, put us on the map. Thank you, Ryan. Great job. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate it. Ryan McHugh, Manager in Tourism Events, City of Hamilton, also Tim Potisic and the people at Supercrawl involved with it, So, and, and the Thai Cats, of course, and the Grey Cup people who, who just did an incredible job, made us all proud. Uh, the fall economic update is due out in minutes, so uh, kind of tough for our guest, Moshe Lander, a senior economist lecturer at Concordia University, uh, to talk before uh, the cat is out of the bag, per se, but we'll try our best to uh, give you some thought about what is on the way. Moshe, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. It is not difficult to talk at all. It's difficult to be right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so from what we've heard, obviously, a lot of chatter around housing. Um, what are you expecting today? Yeah, so there's going to be some spending there on housing to try and alleviate the housing problem that exists in Canada. Unfortunately, whatever it is that they're doing is not going to fix the problem, but it's going to buy them a few months before the budget when they might have to try and rethink about how they want to do things. Uh, we're going to see really at the end of the day is just an update. It's just an update on revenues and spending and what they think the deficit's going to be. Uh, this is merely something to try and get them through uh, that they're not just presenting numbers and ignoring the, the issues Canadians have. So how will Canadians digest this? Will they be lost in the sauce or is there something worth listening for? I, I don't really think that there's going to be anything here that's life-changing. You and I have spoken before that the real issue within the housing market in Canada is at, at the municipal level. And so uh, it's true that the federal government is now starting to get a little bit tough with municipalities and trying to dangle funding in front of them if they can find a way to increase uh, the amount of housing that's built. Uh, but, you know, it's not something that can be fixed in, in minutes or in weeks or months. Uh, and part of the problem, too, is that a lot of that spending will just get absorbed in higher costs. Uh, if you're a home builder and you realize the government is dangling money in front of you, Aren't you just going to increase your input prices and, and absorb that in the form of profit rather than uh, actually going about increasing the amount of homes that you're building? Uh, many of these issues were talked about way back in 2015 and have not been acted on. Uh, some have said the federal government late to the game uh, in, in playing issues that weren't really top of mind for, for struggling Canadians. Are they going to buy in now, do you think? No, I think that this is a government that probably realizes its time is up one way or the other. And so if it's now viewing itself as becoming the next opposition, the, the logic then would be, how are we going to make ourselves the next government after the next opposition? 
And so I don't know that you really want to un, uh, unleash spending at this point, because that's going to be the first mm. thing that the new government will point back is, do you want them back in power? Look at what they did on their way out and the way mm. they just let the economy run wild again with government spending. So I, I think that we're going to see a bit of a strategic shift here that we're going to try and do something. If we can convince Canadians that this is something that's acceptable, then so be it. And if it's not, uh, you know, their, their own polling is, is telling them that they're going to be in a lot of trouble in about a year. If you if you're suggesting that and and this is fascinating that you know they're looking if they're looking to the future they're looking about forming opposition and how they reform government again where does that leave leadership uh, moving forward? I I have not thought that there was any way that Trudeau was going to be able to sustain himself as leader. I, I think that we've been watching the next uh, leader of the Liberal Party sitting uh, presenting her update in the next few minutes. Uh, Christopher Freeland hmm. has done so much for that government, whether negotiating the new NAFTA during the height of, of Trump's chaos and uh, name-calling with Canada, to, to having to be the one that always stands up there and, and presents these budgets. Uh, it, it's probably going to be her. Uh, if she has any taint attached to her, uh, then they might have to find somebody that's maybe not uh, in the public mind at this point. But again, this is one of those things that if she has any thoughts that she's going to be uh, uh, the next leader of the party and maybe the next prime minister at some point down the line, she just cannot let loose with spending, especially when we got good numbers today that inflation has come down to 3.1%. and It's just at the high end of the Bank of Canada's target range. Uh, you don't want to do anything that's going to now be a contributor to inflation. So if liberals now change the focus and start looking long term and, and what's going to happen in the next few years, you talked about uh, eyeing the opposition. Where does this leave the NDP in the deal they've made? Yeah, you know, I think they're going to be cut loose at some point. It's pretty clear that they're not going to be able to form a government either. And I don't know that their price for propping up the Liberals, if somehow the two of them can form some sort of joint government after the next election, is going to be worth uh, the price that they're going to ask. So, you know, at some point, it's probably going to just break apart uh, and the Liberals are going to go into self-preservation mode. The problem is that the NDP has nobody to partner up with, and they now have the taint as well of being in government. And so that's mm. the problem when you form these coalitions, that when you're the junior partner in the coalition, you don't get any of the credit for the good stuff, but you get all of the blame for the bad stuff. Uh, it, I have a feeling that uh, Mr. Singh might find himself with uh, his days numbered as well if somebody wants to step up and try and take the leadership from him. So you can't see another coalition forming if, if perhaps uh, the Conservatives don't get a majority next time? Well, it's not an issue of do they get a majority. It's do they even get uh, a minority where they're the largest right. party, in which case they might try to go it alone. I, I don't know that uh, the, the math at this stage of the game, I mean, we're a year out, but I don't know at this stage of the game uh, that the math is there for the NDP and Liberals to do it. I, I think that they're tired, and I think Canadians are tired of them as well. And when you're asking me, what are we going to see in the next couple of minutes? The fact that there's not these big ideas, not big spending, but just not big ideas, Hmm. means that they're kind of spent, uh, no pun intended. Moshe Lander with a senior economics lecturer, Concordia University. Of course, the fall economic update minutes away. Moshe, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, we were talking to Lorraine Sommerfeld about this a while ago, driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator, of course, uh, in regard to electric cars and the repair bill of them. Um, I'd probably feel more comfortable with a hybrid than just something that's solely electrical, uh, just simply because, um, I don't know, that's just my feeling right now. But uh, we're hearing another story, and we've talked about this with Lorraine before, about the cost and the shock of actually replacing a battery on a car. There's a story of a Stony Creek gentleman who has just gone through that when he bought his second, uh, and Lorraine is with us now. Lorraine, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing good, Scott. Is this just the lemonade and, uh, you know, it just happens and, and when it happens, it's a big one? I mean, I know. And, and again, I don't want to pee on uh, EVs and such, but, um, uh, you know, uh, you're, I'm a supporter of it. I know you are. But how do you explain this and, and how do you because this is this is going to make people pause. Yeah, this is an unfortunate communications breakdown. Um, I think there's a little bit of, you know, when you ask a handyman to fix one little hole in your drywall, he tells you $9,000 because he doesn't want to do it. Yeah, I think. There's an element of that. But the other thing is the aftermarket hasn't caught up yet to the EV market. It's still evolving Mm. and changing. And I'll be honest, those headlines, we all use them, but it's a headline. And I don't want people running away from EVs because of this. They have, you know, 160,000 eight-year warranty on the batteries. Most of them go far beyond that, especially if you do, you know, good battery care. This is really unfortunate that this came out this way. And I understand the media hopping on it, but it was really fumbled badly. I don't know the details of it. I really don't. But that whatever dealership it was, that was not the way you handle this. You work with the manufacturer, you get a better answer than that. You bring up a valid point, Lorraine. Is it perhaps people just not there yet, not sure what to do? And and you also brought up a great point about uh, aftermarket parts. If you have to go back to the manufacturer for those parts, they can be much more expensive. There's a whole industry in people who, who produce aftermarket parts, which are just as good as the original. Have they mm-hmm. caught up? No, no, we're, we're, we're not there. You know, if you are told you need a new battery for your Mustang, you can get one from Ford, the dealership. You can go to Canadian Tire. You can go, yeah. you know, you have options, all kinds of options, which span hundreds of dollars in, you know, different prices. The aftermarket for EVs, it's not, it's not there yet. We're not seeing it. But as the demand grows, we will see these industries evolve to meet that demand because they want to see what they're chasing after first. But we will see batteries that have been reclaimed, like when you go to the wreckers to get a, you know, a new right door for your vehicle, yeah. something like that. So these industries will evolve and catch up. Because, you know, if you see an EV that's been smucked up, it doesn't mean the battery's wrecked. Just like sometimes the car looks fine, but the battery has been torn. There's been, a, right. you know, a couple of places like that. So we will see this catch up and change. And again, those batteries, they're good. They've got a long warranty on them. They have a lot of life in them. They have good aftermarket um, applications, even when they're not being used in cars anymore. We're going to see a closed loop on recycling them. It should be 100%. That's what we have to aim for. So again, the industry is evolving, and I'm sorry about the headlines. Um, yeah. And it's scary. I, it's scary as a car owner to be told that. It wasn't handled well at all. Uh, what is this a dealer issue then? Where does head office play? What would you recommend if somebody finds themselves in this situation? Well, head office jumped in and I know the PR person really, really well that jumped into this and had to, you know, fight your way out of it. Um, I, I think calm is good. If you go to a dealer and you're not getting answers that are helping you, you go to another dealer. Um, there's, you can talk to OMVIC who regulate dealers. You can call the APA who go to bat for 
you know, consumers. So you, you do have options. A lot of it, though, is don't get freaked out. You have to get answers to your questions. Can they be yeah. scary? Sure. But the other thing I'm going to tell people, if you're buying an EV, ask these questions before you sign to buy one. Ask what the outcome is, you know, what you can expect and what you should do. In the top, you said that you would go hybrid. I'm with you. I can't believe I agree with you about something. Uh, <laughs> we agree a lot more, Lorraine, than you think. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, you know, if, if you're, you know, if your comfort level's not there, look at the hybrid market. It's huge. I think that's the bridge to the EV for most of us, frankly. And I'm pretty normal. So, uh, uh, so um, as far as you taught, you touched on this a little bit, but you know, again, cars get wrecked all the time. They get in accidents, unfortunately, and sometimes not worth fixing or what have you. Uh, are you still able to get something like a recycled battery out of a wrecker? Where are we with that? We're, we're not there yet. I've heard some noise about that out in BC. There's some people that are, you know, looking at doing that. Mm-hmm. The US will be ahead of us on that. And China will be way further ahead of us, you know, when that happens. So we are starting to see noise and movement in that direction. Um, it's moved so quickly. I mean, so quickly, as you know, in the past 10 years, the last two years. So again, if your comfort level is not there, these are questions to ask before you buy one and get and make sure you get an answer you can live with and get it in writing. And but, you, you, you also brought up a valid point last time we talked about this is like, talk to someone who owns one. This guy said that he oh. had had two, so obviously he was yeah. well versed in it. Yeah, and again, he it was a used vehicle, I think, and I don't want yeah. this to scare people off that no. because the used market is starting to move for EVs as well, which is a good thing. But again, it's new technology, and it's new to it's new to everybody, so yeah. it's really hard. You know, talk to people that have them when it comes to the lifestyle, making it fit. You know, how how does it get you around? How are you good on trips? You know, commuting, mm-hmm. but also ask those questions of the manufacturer. And do some reading. Google make, model, year, and problems. And that's where you're going to find chat rooms that are going to tell you a lot about the car you're thinking of buying. All right. Great advice from Lorraine Summerfeld, columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. Electric cars and everything that takes us where we need to go. Uh, Lorraine, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks, Scott. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You remember Michael Spaber and Michael Kovrig, the two Michaels held uh, when uh, the Huawei executive was held here in Canada, uh, taken off the street. And, um, you know, I've often wondered why after the, the release of these two gentlemen, everybody went mum and we have not heard anything uh, from anybody. And uh, Foreign Affairs Minister... Uh, Melanie Jolie at the very beginning of this, um, I think she used the word probation or parole or some sort of slip of the tongue to try to re- uh, reveal some part of this deal and give us some insight. And, and that was it. It was radio silence. Uh, and, and now this is very odd in the sense that Michael Spaver is seeking a multi-million dollar settlement from Ottawa, alleging that he was detained for nearly three years because he unwittingly provided intelligence on North Korea to Canada and allied spy services. He said that uh, that the deception was conducted by fellow Canadian prisoner Michael Kovrig, and it was intelligence work by the latter that led to both of the men's incarceration by Chinese authorities, uh, according to the sources. Uh, just a bizarre turn of events. Let's get an update. Stephen Chase is with us. He's written on this. Senior parliamentarian reporter with the Globe and Mail and here now. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, glad to be here. This is bizarre. The more we learn about it. Um, first of all, why is this happening now? It's happening now because Michael Spavor, 
who was uh, in jail for more than well, almost three years by the uh, Chinese government, um, is seeking a multimillion-dollar settlement from the government. Uh, that we have not uh, like seen a breakdown of uh, what he wants for what, but the presumption is he wants money because he was incarcerated as a result of effectively the government's decision to arrest a Chinese tech executive, Meng Wanzhou, um, just before his incarceration. So he's saying, you know, you made the decision to arrest her. I was a tit-for-tat sort of, um, you know, prisoner on in China, and I, I deserve compensation for that because of decisions your government took. But he's also saying, I deserve compensation because Michael Kovrig, who was also, of course, um, jailed, I had talked to him about North Korea, and Mr. Spavor, of course, has unusual level of access to North Korea and to the North Korean leadership. He made a living uh, doing that in, the, in, a border, in a border town of China. He said, I gave information to Michael Kovrig um, about um, you know, what I knew about North Korea, and that was turned over uh, in this, uh, through a particular diplomatic reporting program built to the government and to our allies. And that's the Chinese mentioned that and they held that against me. And that's one of the reasons they picked me up. So I deserve compensation for that as well. What's the relationship of the uh, two Michaels before this and now? Well, I don't I can't speak to now because we uh, they don't talk. They have given um, neither of them have given much in the way of any kind of interview. And there's been no tell all book and there's been no uh, revelatory interview. But before they were acquaintances and they met and talked um, because, of course, Mr. Kovrig, uh, for a number of years, was a diplomat in China who was part of a special program called the Global Security Reporting Program. And this, there's a very strong spotlight being shone on that program as a result of Mr. Spavor's allegations. This is a very particular program for diplomats where they don't do what other diplomats do. They don't have to process visas. They don't have to promote trade. They don't have to uh, do all the administrative tasks that a, a government diplomat would do. All they do is hoover up information. They're super collectors. It's a special program. Some might say it was created because we don't have a foreign intelligence gathering program in Canada. We have no foreign intelligence service like the CIA. Uh, and into that void has, has, has basically um, two, two or three programs have emerged. One at the Department of Defense and also this global security reporting program. Now, the Department of uh, the Global Affairs Department argues this is not intelligence gathering. They're not spies. All they do is simply, you know, report full time on issues of security of importance to Canada's security interests. So, Mr. Mr. Spavor, or sorry, rather, Mr. Kovrig was a member of this program, and the um, the the idea is that he provided information to Mr. Mr. Spavor provided information to Mr. Kovrig while he was doing this, and it was passed on, and this was unwitting. He did not realize this was going on at the time. So who as it, as, is at fault here? Um, what are your thoughts on the credibility of all of this? Good question. I think that the legal negotiations are still going on. Mr. Spavor has a very high-powered uh, lawyer, uh, John Phillips, who managed to extract a significant settlement from the government for Omar Cotter. You might remember that case. Yeah, he was held yeah. in Guantanamo for many years. So he has, he has quite a knack for, uh, for negotiating good settlements. And so right now there's a toing and froing with uh, with the Justice Department and Global Affairs. I guess in the end uh, it will it'll determine what kind of settlement we get and what kind of admissions they make. But 
there clearly is a lot of questions being asked about the global uh, security reporting program, and I'll tell you why. Uh, when it comes to spying programs, espionage programs, like, for instance, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which is a domestic spy agency, they have very strict rules regarding sources. They have to protect their sources. They have a duty of care to sources. They can't expose their sources to, they can't expose their sources to unknown risks. We don't know a lot about the way that the Global Security Reporting Program treats their sources. If they're meeting with people in hostile authoritarian countries that, 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 that do a lot of surveillance, um, do they have enough controls to safeguard their sources, to protect their sources, in case the uh, Chinese government, for instance, becomes convinced that there's spying going on here? So we, we don't know a lot about um, the kind of duty of care and the kind of attention to protecting sources that Global Affairs engages in through this program. Again, there's about 30 of these type of diplomats around the world. They tend to be in hot spots. Where do you think this is going, Stephen? I think the government's going to try to settle this because the government doesn't want it discussed and doesn't want us to talk about it because the Chinese can use this uh, as, as propaganda and to sort of further their argument that, uh, that, in fact, spying was going on, which, of course, nothing excuses the Chinese detention of these two men. Oh, I think we mm. should keep that in, in, in perspective. And what about government reaction here? Comments on this so far? The government has done very little except to sort of say that these men weren't spies and anything that that um, that perpetuates that notion is false. But they refuse to engage on it, and I guess part of the reason is they're right now in furious negotiations with Mr. Phillips on behalf of Mr. Spabor. Uh, when this story was going on, I mean, it captivated Canadians, and then all of a sudden, miraculously, boom, uh, there was an exchange or, or something happened, and the two Michaels were released, and then it was radio silence. Uh, obviously yep. waiting for the other shoe to drop or get your ducks in a row, pick your phrase. Well, we were really surprised, too. Uh, there's, an, there's a case in Australia where an Australian journalist was held for a very long time by the Chinese. She was released. She immediately went and did a tell-all, explained everything, you know, let people know what she went through. Nothing of the sort from these two men. Absolute radio silence. Now, you could very easily say they're recovering. They, it, it was tr- tremendously trying. The psychological and physical suffering must have been great. Uh, so, you know, we, we don't want to make a lot of judgments about why they're not talking, but they certainly mm-hmm. have been pretty mum. There was talk of a book, and now I'm not even sure a book's going to happen. Uh, do you think the Canadians? Do you think Canadians are still interested in this? Does this story have legs? I think so. Um, it's extraordinary to see two of your citizens jailed arbitrarily by another government in clearly what was a revenge uh, hostage-taking situation. The government at the time called it uh, uh, hostage diplomacy. So, and, and and you know, it's there's 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 nothing there's nothing excuses what the Chinese did. So. Uh, and any of us can't even conceive of what it'd be like to be held for three years apart from your family uh, because mm. of a dispute over geopolitics. So, yeah, absolutely. This is a, a story that we're going to be talking about until we've uh, we've gotten every detail out of it. Stephen Chase with us, senior parliamentary reporter with The Globe and Mail. You can read his latest on the two Michaels and where that story is going. Stephen, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. 
Let's get an update. Are things moving? The Israeli-Hamas war in Gaza. Uh, hospitals, military intelligence, and, and um, a lot of what has been going on below these facilities has been the focus. Let's bring in Dr. Arn Kislenko, uh, Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program at Trinity College, U of T, and uh, Department of History at Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Arn, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Arn, this has really divided uh, uh, many parts of the world, not just Canada, and it's constantly being sold as Palestinians against Israelis. Um, am I being naive? Am, am I being ignorant here? But for me, this is not about uh, Palestinians versus Israelis. Um, it, it's not about religion versus religion. It's not about left versus right. It's about democracy and freedom versus authoritarianism and terrorism. Obviously, it's not that simple. But how do how how do Palestinians how do Canadians differentiate between differentiate between Palestinians and those directly involved in Hamas? Yeah, it's not ignorance at all. As a matter of fact, that's the question we should start uh, asking ourselves all the time, especially on university campuses. Okay, let me stop you right there, Art. Let me stop you right there before you get to the answer. Why are we not having that discussion? Well, there you go. It's in part because a lot of people in the debate don't care to have that debate. That's that's my problem. I say this definitively as a university prof that teaches this stuff and also hosts events. We just hosted one a couple of weeks ago. Remarkably, it went quite peacefully. There was no major problem. But this is the problem is that we we have a lot of people. It's not just students. It's faculty, too, um, sometimes outside groups that have, in effect, hijacked the process. And they use these kind of, you know, forums uh, for very vitriolic and very self-interested discussions. And I know it because I've been part of it, right, where you start saying something, especially as a nerdy historian, and somebody shuts you down because they want a yes or no answer or they want you to say, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And and it really does cheese us off, especially as, as historians, because um, it's not that there's not an answer. I think what you said off of the start is right. You can, in fact, for some people, this is a, an issue about democracy versus not democracy and terrorism versus something else. Uh, but some people don't really even want to get into those weeds. They just want you to make a very simplistic comment that's in their court. And so what we've seen is a kind of gutting of academic process of critical thinking, of debate, uh, whatever you want to call it. And it's, it's shameful. And I, you know, I've listened to discussions on, on media about this. Um, and, and simultaneous with the horror of the war that's going on is, is a kind of war zone that's been created, uh, um, challenging academic freedom on our campuses. Do Palestinians need to or want to separate themselves from Hamas? Uh, do do Palis- the majority of Palestinians support Hamas? Because that's the question that nobody seems willing to answer. Yeah, I mean, personally speaking, and I, I've not, of course, uh, you know, done surveys in in uh, Gaza or in the West Bank to, to answer those kind of questions directly. I think first and foremost, it depends on who you're talking to and when you're talking to them. Uh, and then more importantly, I would say, you know, the vast majority of Palestinians, safe to assume, do not want war. I, I think that is a safe statement because nobody in their right mind, regardless of their politics have wanted. Um, I think a lot of people have been quite soft on Hamas in, in Palestine and have, have 
seen it more as a social agency. That's the historical truth uh, from its creation onwards. And they've seen it more as providing, you know, mother's milk and, and all that sort of stuff and chosen for various reasons to ignore uh, its militancy and its international terrorism in the same way that, that a lot of Israelis would, would choose not to see Israel as a, as a, you know, as a, as a bad guy in the Middle East through its own foreign policy. So again, you're into this question of very vested interests. Uh, now, I think the, the reality is, is that a lot of Palestinians um, may have been driven to a more favorable view of Hamas, bizarrely, even though I would say Hamas put them uh, literally in the front lines. And I have no problem saying Hamas, I, I think, has used the Palestinian people and continues to use them as a shield in war. Um, but I maybe very tragically, Israel's response has, is, is likely to drive a lot of people back to this conception that Hamas is our only choice. Uh, regardless of its legacy, regardless of its intent. And that's that's the trap, right? That's why a lot of experts say we're now into a very long and protracted struggle. Um, and I think Hamas didn't knew this. I think Hamas baited Israel into yeah. into this war to sideline the, the long and reasonably successful last year or so of backroom diplomacy that was that was about to, to sort of change the optics of, of uh, the Middle East. Um, and so to some degree, it committed itself to this... Uh, you know, the suicide mission, but it's not its suicide, it's the suicide of the Palestinian people. It has drawn a lot of people into harm's way. That does not in any way legitimate the full scale of Israel's response. Uh, that's a, to me, it's a connected but separate issue. But the reality is when I see protesters on either side, I, I always wonder, are you examining the full picture? So if you're pro-Palestinian, and I totally support your right to argue anything you like, but have you considered the fact that, you know, Hamas, A, carried out this attack and B, very knowingly uh, anticipated this horrible response. And, and that's a discussion we need to have in the same way that Israelis would be expected to say, is it proportional? Is our response proportional uh, to what happened? Right. That's the dilemma. And my main issue, as you can probably figure out, is that we can't even get to that discussion on some yeah. universities and campuses because you got to be pro something and anti something else. It seems to always be all about uh, Palestinians versus is Israelis, as opposed to, as you mentioned, democracy versus non-democracy. Uh, hopefully we can move that discussion forward. Uh, Dr. Arn Kislenko, we could talk about this all day. Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program, Trinity College, U of T, and as well, uh, History Department at Toronto Metropolitan University. Arn, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. All right, uh, economic uh, statement delivered today by the Deputy Prime Minister. Not a lot new, I'm thinking, other than um, chatter about uh, uh, taxing those uh, using uh, a a Airbnb and such. But a lot of the stuff uh, from 2015 and, and other promises that were made. Uh, but is there much wiggle room, as it was very awkward to see the backbenchers looking quite sheepish and trying to plod when things sounded good? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, here now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yes, doing very well. Thank you, Scott. Your take on what you heard this afternoon? I think um, the uh, reality is catching up to the uh, government of Canada, to the finance minister. I say that because from the beginning of their time in office in 2015, they've been dismissive of deficits. Mr. Trudeau was very clear about that. You know, he, he said deficits balance themselves. And he said, I'm not, he actually said it several times. He's on the record saying, I'm not worried mm -hmm. about them. I, I'm not concerned about them. 
And and I've always been concerned about them, not because I sit around worrying about deficits as such. There's nothing magical about them. It's just that because I'm a former banker, I understand that if you get into debt and the debt starts to get bigger and bigger, your interest payments go up and up and they eat up more of your discretionary income. And I know what economists say, you know, a government is not the same as a household because the governor, the, the government has a Bank of Canada to print money. It's true. So there, it's not exactly parallel. But at the same time, when and I'm saying this because I know some economists listen to your show, um, government monetary policy never uh, abolished the laws of arithmetic and compounding interest on debt. As Prime Minister Chrétien and Finance Minister Paul Martin discovered when they woke up after dismissing in the 93 campaign, I remember it vividly, saying deficits aren't a critical problem. They're, this is just a, you know, just people getting excited over nothing. And then Paul Martin went down to Wall Street and the bond markets read the riot act to him and basically said, we're not going to lend you, you anymore because you just become too high risk. And that's when he came back and convinced Mr. Kretschmann that it really was a serious crisis. Interest uh, payments at the time, if I recall, I stand to be corrected, but I think it was eating up about 30 or 35 cents on every dollar was going to interest on the debt because of the compounding. So again, government of Canada is not the same thing as a household. I acknowledge that. At the same time, they are, governments are subject to arithmetic and the law of compound interest that as you owe more and more money, the amount you pay in interest goes up, up, up and takes more and more of your discretionary spending. And we are in a period unlike the 90s when we the underlying economy, the overall economic outlook was very positive and rosy and long-term GDP growth rates were quite a bit higher, significantly higher, which meant that the government would generate significantly larger tax revenues as they went forward. We're now in a very different era where for as far as the eye can see, as far as the projections go, we're looking at very low growth rates for, for, for years and years and years in the future, low yeah. GDP. And I know some of my other progressive friends say to me, don't get excited about GDP. It's all you ever talk about. Let me connect the dots for everybody. When the GDP is growing strongly, four, five, six percent, tax revenues gush. I mean, they just gush and flow into the federal government's treasury and the provincial governments to pay for, oh my goodness, university professors' salaries like me and other people who listen to you. And when the GDP drops down to a half a point or one point, those revenues dry up, they shrivel up. I don't wanna say they go to zero, but they shrivel up and the government has far less wiggle room, far less runway. That day arrived, I think, or at least the recognition of that day arrived today when the Minister of Finance stood up in the House of Commons. Um, after eight years of none of this stuff, uh, now all of a sudden the government's talking about it, affordability issues, housing, and and as you said, was completely in denial of this stuff for the first eight yeah. years. Can they turn the Titanic around and will Canadians buy in? Those are two unbelievably uh, strategic and existential questions. They are. Um, of course, the government can turn it around uh, because we're a very wealthy country. We're still one of the 10 large. I don't want to confuse large with wealthy, okay? But we are both a large economy, 10th or 11th in the world, but so is China. But China has a very small average income per person. It's only about $18,000. We're like 60, 55, 60,000. So we're not only large, but we're wealthy per person. Having said that, we've made a bunch of bad, in my opinion, 
a bunch of bad choices and we squandered a lot of money in the last 10 years. We put far, far, far too much monetary and fiscal stimulus into the economy during the pandemic when we should have been targeting like a laser beam on the 16% who were actually unemployed because of pandemic instead of doing what we did do was spend billions and billions on people that didn't lose their jobs and on companies that were extremely profitable. Having said that, Scott, I think the good news is in this weird way, the good news in this terrible bad news is, you know, Napoleon said nothing concentrates the mind like the threat of being hung in the morning. And, and I mean by that, that this is forcing us to act more, I believe, more prudently and more responsibly. Example A of what I just said, it looks like that terrible proposal for universal pharmacare is not going to go forward. And for those sitting there saying, what are you talking about? How can you be against pharmacare? I am not. We have 10 provincial pharmacare programs in this country, which according to Kaihai, account for 45% of all the prescription drugs in this country are paid for by the taxpayer. That's a good thing. That goes to low-income people, the bottom two quintiles approximately, the bottom 40%. What they were proposing to do was give free drugs to high-income people like professors, like me, and deputy ministers, and superior court judges, and CEOs, and Conrad Black. This was an unbelievably irresponsible squandering of another 20-odd billion dollars a year. It looks like our, our very bad fiscal situation has kiboshed and put, uh, sent to the to the to the whatever you call the woodshed uh, that terrible proposal for universal pharmacare for high income or wealthy people. Be interesting to see where that leaves the NDP. Dr. Ian Lee with us, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, talking about the fallout of the economic update. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Canadian Pacific holiday train featuring 14 rail cars uh, decorated with thousands of lights. It's an annual event. It rolls into the hammer tomorrow. And, uh, of course, not only uh, bringing the train lit up and the uh, musicians to entertain, also uh, this benefits food share in every area that they go to, including Hamilton Food Share, uh, with their appearance this year. Let's bring in Felicia Kostecki, Community Relations Coordinator, Hamilton Food Share, and here now. Felicia, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everybody. Talk, talk about the significance of this uh, of this event and f- the relationship between Food Share and, of course, uh, Canadian Pacific and the Holiday Train. Oh my gosh, Scott, this is so exciting. When you think about Hamilton Food Share and you think about our mission, it's working together to end hunger in our community. And the CPKC Holiday Train is a perfect example of the community coming together to, it's a perfect example of the community coming together to feed our neighbors in need. And what better holiday spirit is there in that? Now, we've and been ob- involved. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Obviously, the objective here is when you come to see the train, you bring some uh, non-perishable food items and help out food share. Um, absolutely. I mean, the train itself is an awe-inspiring, it's just a beautiful, beautiful sight. But it is, you're right, Scott, it's not just about the music and the lights. It's really about giving back by bringing non-perishable or items or cash donations so you can help us stock the shelves of food banks and meal programs across Hamilton in time for the holidays. 
And that's what it's all about, is feeding the hungry for the holidays. Holidays obviously been a big challenge for Hamilton Food Share. What's it been like for you post-pandemic, Felicia, and the extra demand? Well, in this past year, demand has increased by 40%. And it's, it's, just, it's just staggering. I mean, the community is coming together. We're helping and we're, we're getting the food out there. But when you look at even just the past year, 34% of the people that have visited a food bank have done so for the very first time. You know, for the holiday season, we're going to support over 12,000 households in December. I mean, that and with the help of the community and events like the CPKC Holiday Train, we're able to do that. And we would not be able to do it without the community support. And we're so grateful. And I understand at, at Food Share and, and other organizations like this, um, um, you know, you're seeing an increase right the way across the board, all walks of life, all ages, people who wouldn't normally considering themselves using such a place. Absolutely. And people that maybe in the past used it maybe once a month to tie themselves over, now they're using it maybe every week or a couple times a week. So people are becoming more and more dependent on food, on the food banks to feed their families. Obviously, uh, Felicia, we're hearing more about affordability issues, housing issues, how difficult it is uh, for families to make ends meet and such. Are you concerned that's going to lead to less donation, uh, less people stepping up, or does it work the opposite? Um, Well, everybody, you know, Hamilton itself is, so wonderful about taking care of their neighbors. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone is a stress. But remember, for every dollar donation that someone gives, we're able to raise $5 worth of food. So what I can say to people is no donation is too small. One can of soup will feed someone for an evening. One dollar will raise $5 worth of food. So everything matters. and and. And Hamilton is out there helping us do just that. Mm-hmm. And and money is still the best donation, still the best option because you have buying power. Is that accurate? Although, of course, you will, you'll accept everything, but uh, but money you can really make work for you. You know, Scott, we like both. The money, you're right. We have the buying power for to be able to you know convert a single dollar into five dollars worth of food, but. Community donations also play a really critical role. They're, they're in instant gratification. We have big sorting stations set up where we can get that food sorted and get it immediately to all the 23 food banks and hot meal programs in Hamilton. And what do community donations do? They bring variety, variety, instant gratification. Mm-hmm. So the combination of both is really gives the people needing our needing the services a good feel nutritious appropriate food for them and that's what it's all about and what about the issue of like obviously times are tough for everybody people sometimes have less to give uh uh this year or what have you are are you finding that uh that hamiltonians are still stepping up uh or are you finding it difficult to 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 get donations you know hamiltonians Hamiltonians, they step up. I think it's, it's, it's in our DNA. It's in our blood. 
And more than ever, it's so impressive, the, the amount of donations, the amount of food drives that are going on, and everyone wants to help to the best of their ability. And you put all that together, and you've got a community that's really helping the people in need. And, and that's what it's all about. That's what the holiday season is all about. So give us some details on this visit with uh, the, the holiday train tomorrow. And if people want to go to that event uh, logistically, uh, where it is, and, and what's the best way to help uh, by going to the event? Okay, so tomorrow at about 745, along the south side of Gage Park, along Lawrence, train, uh, Lawrence Road, the CC Holiday Train will come rolling in. Now imagine this, Scott, 14 cars, rail cars, decked out with lights, the most spectacular mm. thing. It comes up and then slowly it comes to a stop and then the boxcar opens to um, for the stage. Now while that's happening, while you're waiting, you're not going to be bored because there's music playing, there's Santa, all your favorite Christmas characters, um, Hamilton mascots will be milling through the crowds. They'll be handing out candy canes, chatting with the people. Uh, We'll have 50 volunteers there, at least, that will be milling around collecting food donations and cash donations to help our our neighbors in need. Our trucks are going to be there. If you're feeling a little bit chilly... Um, Tim Hortons will be on site with hot beverages. It's it's uh, it's a whole feeling of anticipation and excitement mm. for when that train rolls in. And when it rolls in, it is absolutely you will become breathless. It's the most beautiful thing that you've ever huh. seen. And if we can't attend the event, how do we help Food Share? Um, you go online, HamiltonFoodShare.org, um, and um, you can make a you can make a donation. All right, uh, Hamilton Food Share online if you can help and you can't make it to the train tomorrow, which is uh, stopping around 745 beside Lawrence Road, just south of Gage Park. And, of course, uh, musical performances and 14 beautiful rail, rail cars done up to uh, the nines with lights. So another great event and another way for you to help Hamiltonians and, of course, Hamilton Food Share. Felicia Kostecki with us, community, uh, community, uh, community Relations Coordinator for Hamilton Food Share. Felicia, thank you so much. Good Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Goodbye, everybody. Scott Radley, uh, host of the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, we haven't chatted since the Grey Cup. Wanted your opinion. Obviously, an edge of your seat game uh, down to the dying seconds. Uh, great halftime show. But it seems everybody's talking as well about the partay that was put on, uh, whether it was going on at the Armory or, or James Street North or such. And even uh, one of your buddies, Steve Milton at the Specs, said that this is going to change uh, the face of Grey Cups moving forward. Do you think we made a dent here? Uh, look, they, the organizers get full marks. They did a great job putting together a great uh, event. And I think, you know, when I'm reading Steve and I, I, you know, Steve, I think Steve has a point because I think what is going to happen now is the expectations are going to be that it's more than, it's more than just go to the convention center in whatever town it is, whatever city it is. And there's mm-hmm. just a bunch of rooms with a bunch of beer. I think that yeah, it's, you know, yeah. and those are fine. Those are great. Those are the traditional sure. thing. But here, you know, you, you had the, 
the James Street thing with the outdoor concerts and you had the, you had those same things, the convention center, but you had Carrie Underwood come in and you had, there was a lot of other stuff that if, if, put it this way, if you were not a beer drinker, you could actually enjoy a Grey Cup festivity. And that's not always the way it is. Uh, and it seemed like the city was on show as well as the Grey Cup. It was, you know, like the Santa Claus Parade, lots going on. So Forgot about that yeah, one, yes. Yeah, yeah, we can do all of this at once. It's it's a great experiment for us. And doesn't that actually make sense? I mean, we have a hard yes. time. We have a hard time in this city sometimes luring people downtown, and we can go into all the reasons why that may be the case. Doesn't really matter right now, but that being the reality that there are people around this city who sometimes will say, ah, "I don't really want to go down there." What if you put a a density of things? You you, you put a whole bunch of stuff that is appealing, and again not dumping on beer drinking, it's fine, it's good, but just if it's more than just the idea that we're going to go down and drink beer, there's lots of other things to do, that's that's motivating, that's enticing for people to come down and try, and that's why I think it was so successful. And many times, you know, people, because an event, and I'm not just saying that, you know, this is anything to do with the Great Cup people or whatever, but it's like, it's our event, this is what we're doing, and you can't incorporate anything else into it, uh, and we, can, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time here. And again, uh, you know, with the exception of some, you know, thoughts about an HSR strike, but the good thing, that was all, uh, you know, solved, resolved before uh, the actual event, but we can do, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We, uh, we can do more than one thing. I think, and again, going back to Steve's piece about how this is going to change Grey Cups, I wouldn't be at all surprised if other places not only look at what we're just talking about, but said, you know what, we could actually do more variety of things. So we can bring in the Santa Claus parade and, you know, we could do this and we could do that. We can make it so that we're going to, if an event was going to happen in... I don't know, the first week of December, let's move it up a couple of weeks. And if an event was going to happen in late October, let's push it back a couple of weeks. Let's really put all these things and make it a whole giant one week of, you know what? Yeah, it might be nice to have everything all spread out, but let's make it one giant fiesta. And honestly, it worked here. And I think that's, that's what Steve's talking about. And I think he's right. That's the kind of thing. I think that if, if a Grey Cup, now we may not see a Grey Cup here for another decade because it it does rotate around, but if over the next number of years, if some city just returns to a bunch of parties with nothing else going on, I think a lot of people will point to that and go, what a disappointment. How did you not live up to what Hamilton did? Mm. And again, kudos to, you know, the... All uh, the people involved. Tim Podisic and and the people at Supercrawl for bringing another element to it and the Grey Cup people for being open to it. I mean, I heard lots of people talking about getting, just even going in to see the armories. For sure. And, and on Grey Cup Day, for example, there was a band that, uh, so in the little concord, the, the courtyard outside the stadium, they had a band shell set up there and Monster Truck played yeah. there, but also yeah. Born in the 80s played there. Totally different from Monster Truck. And there was another band, which is, whose name I'm forgetting, I apologize, but again, totally different from either of them. They're from Winnipeg and it was great. You could go down there and maybe you didn't like one of those bands, but over the course of three or four hours before yeah. the game, there was going to be something you liked probably, unless you're, unless you're really picky, there was going to be yeah. something you liked. That was great. Anything to learn from this? I, again, I think that if you give people enough options and you throw enough things in front of them, 
it's very hard. It's very hard, Scott, to imagine that over the course of a week, if somebody went down and walked around, it's very hard to imagine unless they are, you know, that old man from up when he's in his angry, cranky <laughs> moment. It's hard to imagine that you couldn't have found something where you said that was great. You really would have had to work at it as one of the most angry, bitter people to come away from mm. there and say, there was nothing going on that I could appreciate. You, that, that, might, that would say way more about you than it would say about the Grey Cup Festival. And kudos to all involved. Another great show. 100%. Uh, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a great one. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Danny, who emails uh, on uh, watching the coverage of the budget update. LOL, I watched the Liberal MPs. They look paralyzed. Minister Champagne was in a trance-like state. I have the solution. Fire the whole lot of them. Let's start over, says Danny. Keep right except to pass. (laughs) 